Happy Sabbath, church. Amazing music. By the way, this is, I think, my, my favorite local group. Uh, and so it's just amazing how God is scheduling so that they sing before I speak, because it happened at, at Newest as well. But anyways, uh, it's good to be in God's house today, and uh, happy Sabbath to you. You know, um, first of all, I want to thank Pastor Colin for the invitation to speak. It is indeed an honor and a privilege to speak for God, and I always enjoy to do that. However, like Elder uh, rightly mentioned, uh, you know, my words have no power. My words have no power to do what needs to be done today. And so please pray for me. Pray that God would put his words in my mouth and that his word would not return to him void. It's been a while since I visited this church. I think it was uh, before, the, before the pandemic, if I'm not mistaken. And so it's good to be back and uh, it's good to, to speak to you today. I also bring you greetings from the Westminster SDA Church. We both witnessed uh, the power of God during the 10 days of prayer that we had together. It was amazing. And we hope to do more things together in the future. So that, you know, because at the end of the day, the church is one, right? The church is one. And so I am happy to be in God's house today. And I want to thank God, before I begin, for, for his protection, how he has guided me, especially this morning. It was actually not dramatic, but it was quite an eventful morning that I had. So I took a bus, and apparently it was the wrong bus, so I had to take another bus, and I was kind of anxious throughout the process, but God sent his angel to guide me and to ensure that everything happens uh, according to his will. And then when I was here, for some reason, I couldn't uh, get to my iPad. Uh, the iPad got disabled and all that, but I prayed to God, and God gave me the solution. Now I'm using the tablet. I feel like Moses preaching from the tablet, <laughs> all right? So it's amazing to be in God's house today, and so I want to say to you that despite the, despite the restrictions you may be having, despite the prescriptions, afflictions, or any other descriptions of pain and suffering you may be going through, in this present and evil world, you can still trust the wisdom and love of God. God is still love. The Bible says in my book, well, in the book of James, in him is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. And so God's love can be trusted. God's love can be depended upon. Today we'll be talking about that. We'll be talking about God's love. We'll be talking about how exhaustless it is. And we really cannot begin to fully understand what God's love is. But I hope today we'll just, you know, scratch the surface and dive deep into this topic. But before I begin, um, allow me to pray, um, uh, to pray before we begin. I was hoping to kneel, so I'll do this. All right, let us pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your love. Lord, throughout the word, you have described and defined the church as a woman you're married to. And today, as we begin to discuss what that means exactly, I pray, Lord, that you, you send your Holy Spirit to speak to our minds. Remove any distractions from our minds right now. Let us truly focus on you. 
let us turn our eyes upon Jesus and see nothing else. Lord, forgive me my sins. Forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, I pray that I would not resist your spirit. I pray, Lord, that I may be hidden behind the cross. Lord, I pray that you speak and I listen. I pray that we all may grow in you and that we may all come to the knowledge of truth. I pray that we will not leave the same as we came in today. Lord, be with us as we study your word. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen. And so, as it was read from uh, the scripture reading, our verse of concentration and meditation is found in Song of Solomon, chapter 8, and verse number 6. But really what that is, is simply a summary of the whole book in some sense. And you may be asking yourselves, why are we spending time uh, reading this book? Why spend time reading this book? And, and, and you may wonder, because for me, for example, for, of all the churches I've went to, I've never heard a sermon preached from this book. And, and I was asking myself, why is that the case? You know, most Christian denominations have a habit of ignoring the books of Daniel and Revelation, right? They put them aside. They, they, they treat them as though they are classified, let's say. But I think we also have a peculiar habit when it comes to the book of Song of Solomon. We, we tend to put it aside as well. For us, it's the forbidden book, if you like. But today I want us to change that because we are told that how many scripture? All scripture is given by what? Inspiration of God. And all scripture is profitable for correction, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness, that we may be what? Thoroughly furnished unto every good work, that we may be perfect. And so get your Bibles as we dive deep into God's love because I believe there's something that God wants to share with us from this book. And as you all may know very well, the book of Song of Solomon is a book that was written by King Solomon. And of course, the book celebrates sexual and romantic love. For some reason, just that by itself has the tendency to make us feel uncomfortable, right? But we forget that God is the one who created sexuality and love. That God is the one who invented sex and romance. And what if, what if, there is something that God wants us to learn from that. That, that we could have never known if, if we had never, uh, you know, had this experience or known what this means. And who is better suited to tell us about love and romance than the Bible, than God himself? You know, as Christian youth, even in general, we tend to turn to the world for advice when it comes to love and relationships. When the Word of God has the counsel for us, when the Word of God is filled with practical instructions on these issues. And so I want to counsel my fellow youth who are listening, either online or even right now, to study the book of Song of Solomon. Read it. It will save you from a lot of trouble and heartache in your life. Because the book is so practical. It is inspired. Unlike other magazines you might read, this one is inspired. And this one will teach you what it means to truly love and to be loved. So we are told, for example, the truth of the matter is that sexual love, romantic love, 
is only a representation of the love that should exist between God and his people. We are told in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 25, Husbands, do what? Love your wives, even as who? Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. And so today, just as the word of God is a double-edged sword, you will have a double blessing. We are going to learn how we can love God supremely, but also how to love your spouse or your partner precisely. As we look at the story of King Solomon and the Shulamite woman, we see an example of what perfect love between a man and a woman looks like, and we look at what perfect love between the church, the bride, and Jesus, the bridegroom, must look like. So let's begin with uh, verse number one. We only have a few verses to cover today. So open your Bibles to uh, Song of Solomon, chapter 8, and uh, verse number 1. In verse number 1, maybe I should give you a little time to get there so we all move at the same pace. All right. If you're there, let me know by saying amen. Amen. All right, and so in verse number 1, just to give context, the woman is speaking here, and she says, "All oh, that thou wert as my brother, that sucked the breasts of my mother, when I should find thee without, I would kiss thee, yea, I should not be despised. The Shulamite woman longs and wishes that King Solomon was her brother. Now this at first sight doesn't make sense, right? Except when you understand that in those days, even in these days to some extent, it was not proper for lovers to display affection and intimacy for each other in public. And so it was not proper, for instance, for lovers to kiss in public. Obviously, a romantic kiss, that is. However, it was very okay for brother and sister to kiss and touch and play. All right? And so, and so what she wishes and longs for is to have the freedom to intimacy with her bridegroom that she... she that's similar to the intimacy and the freedom she has with her own brother. And that right there, church, is a very powerful opportunity for us as a church. For you see, as a church, we are married to Jesus Christ. He is our bridegroom. In the book of Revelation, this is very clear. We are referred to as, as his bride. He is our king, our lord, our husband, our man. That's good. But to really enjoy Jesus more, we have to go deeper. In the verse, the woman is looking for a deeper intimacy. In fact, the whole book of Song of Solomon begins with the woman with the burning desire to be more intimate, to get closer, to be heard, to be known, to be loved. Yes, she is familiar with Paul's greet one another with the holy kiss, 2 Corinthians 13:12. And Peter's greet one another with a kiss of love, 1 Peter 5.14, but she's looking for a different kind of kiss. She's not satisfied with a, a hand kiss or a forehead kiss or a cheek, a, a cheek kiss. She wants a lip kiss. Now you may be like, how do I know that? Well, let's go to Song of Solomon chapter 1 verse 1. And there, the woman herself says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for thy love is better than wine. This woman is specific. 
And I think that's enough lessons for lovers here. But in our relationship with Jesus, it is not enough only to, to relate to him as our man, our king, our lord, our husband. That's not enough. We need to remember that Jesus Christ, the son of God, is our brother. And there, there are some privileges we enjoy when Jesus Christ is our brother that we will never have enjoyed otherwise. We are told in Hebrews 2 verse 11 that he is not ashamed to call us brethren. Him being our brother means so much. In a very real sense, he is like us. He has a body like we do. Have you ever thought about that? That when he resurrected, he still has a human body? That he is indeed human as much as he's God? He has experienced every pain that you can ever go through or that you will ever go through. But like the verse alludes to, it's as though Jesus were breastfed from the same mother as we. Eve, if you like, the mother of all living. Jesus is human. Jesus is the real human one. And the humanity of Jesus is so important because while the divinity of Jesus claps hands with God the divine, it is the humanity of Jesus that reaches us when we are sinking deep in sin and lifts us up. And so we sing that song, Love Lifted Me. Love lifted me. When nothing else could help, love lifted me. Jesus is not only our Lord, our King, and Commander. He is also our Savior, our companion, and our friend. There's this classic quote from the devotional I was reading last year, My Life Today. And he says, My Life Today, page 287, paragraph 2, The elder brother of our race is by, by the eternal throne. He looks upon every soul who is turning his face toward him as the savior. He knows by experience what are the weaknesses of humanity. He knows by experience what are our wants and where lies the strength of our temptations. He is watching over you, trembling child of God. Are you tempted? He will deliver. Are you weak? He will strengthen. Are you ignorant? He will enlighten. Are you wounded? He will heal. The Lord tells the number of the stars, and yet he heals the broken in heart and binds up their wounds. Isn't that beautiful, church? And so, friend, you need to, have a, to seek, I should say, a deeper intimacy with Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is our bride, yes, but he is also our brother. And no wonder he says, this is... Solomon speaking, but I, I, I assume Jesus says the same in Solomon chapter, uh, Song of Solomon chapter 4, verse 9. Thou hast ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. Thou hast ravished my heart with one of thine eyes, with one chain of thy neck. And so even as Jesus relates to us, he recognizes that not only are we, are we his church, his bride, but in some real sense, he's part of humanity. And I remember reading Steps to Christ, chapter 1. It says that forever Jesus will forever be human. Can you imagine that? That love is, is mind-blowing. He chose to be human forever. And I was having a conversation with my brother the other day that the, book, the Bible makes it very clear that not only does Jesus want us to go in heaven and just be there, but he wants us to sit on his throne. What exactly does that mean? What honor, what privilege has God bestowed upon us? 
No wonder John, beholding the love that Jesus has loved for us, he cannot exclaim it because it's unspeakable. He cannot describe it because it's indescribable. But he just says, behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we may be called the sons of God, that we may be the relative of God. That's something, right? But going on with this romantic relationship, I wish I had more time to talk about what that means in a, in a physical relationship. But focusing on Jesus, when we focus on Jesus, everything also makes sense in, in some way because Jesus is also specific. In Psalm chapter 2, verse 12, there the word of God says, Kiss the son, lest he be angry and ye perish from the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are, blessed are all they that put their trust in him. And so we need to kiss the son, according to the word of God. And Jesus is looking for very specific kiss as well. He's very specific. Jesus is looking for a kiss of submission and surrender. Jesus is looking for a kiss of confession and commitment. He doesn't mind a kiss on the feet as well as with Mary, the one who opened the alabaster box, poured the ointment and kissed Jesus' feet. A kiss of thankfulness and indebtedness. That's the kiss we need. We need to realize what Jesus Christ has done because whosoever is forgiven much, Jesus said, loves much. But please do not give Jesus a Judas kiss, a kiss on the cheek, a kiss of betrayal, a kiss of hypocrisy, a once a week kiss. You come to church, pray, praise, and live. A kiss of having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. That's not intimacy. You need to go deeper because there is enough room for you in God's heart. And as we move in verse 2, in my, in my father's house, Jesus said, are many mansions. So not only is there enough room for you, but for all who are willing and obedient. Moving on to verse number 2, it says, I would lead thee and bring thee into my mother's house. Who would instruct me? I would cause thee to drink of spiced wine, of the juice of my pomegranate. This verse contains practical instruction for women entering into relationships. And the instruction is, mothers must know. And by extension, parents must know as well. If and when you are in a relationship, for the young folk listening, my fellow, young, my fellow youth, I should say. Because truth of the matter is, the way God designed our romantic relationships is such that they happen in the context of family. And so while, is while love is between two people, true love takes a community. In the book Letters to Young Lovers, we are told if, we are told there that if, um, I don't, all right, there we go. Sorry about that. So in the book Letters to Young Lovers, we are told that if you are blessed with God-fearing parents, seek counsel of them. Open to them your hopes and plans. Learn the lessons which their life experiences have taught. That's Letters to Young Lovers, page 45, paragraph 1. And so if your love, my friend, contradicts commandment number 5, the first command with a promise, honor thy father and thy mother that the days may be long. 
I know love is the summary of all the commandment, but you may need to revise the Ten Commandments again because God does not contradict himself. If your love leads you to dishonor your parents, then it must not be love. It's something else. We would serve, our Lord, we'll serve ourselves from so much heartache and pain if we only listen to the counsel of our parents that they give us. Because they've done this before. They know so much than we do. Now back to the verse. It's interesting how it's the woman that leads the man into the mother's house. And so not only are we, in, are we to introduce our lovers to our families and friends, but also to ourselves in a real sense. It will make more sense if we think of it in the context of Christ. He knocks at the door in the book, Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Does he break in? No. He knocks at the door of our hearts. He waits for us to open. And who leads who in? We lead him in, don't we? Because Jesus is a gentleman. He's not intrusive. And we'll talk about that next, but, but here's a question for you. Considering Revelation 3, 20, it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him. I will sup with him and he with me. There's something about supping and, and you know, sipping that's introduced here. But my question is, where does the juice and the food come from? Who is providing this potluck? Right? Could it be just as the Shulamite woman that we as a church also, we as individuals, um, are also to provide something because the woman provides spiced wine to King Solomon, that we also should provide something to Jesus. And the answer to that is a resounding yes. In fact, Jesus says, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. That implies reciprocity, mutuality, cooperation, and exchange. Not only does he does it to you, but you do it to him as well. Now, we find reference to wine, or when I was thinking about this, I could only think of the drink offering, uh, which is uh, mentioned in the Old Testament. And we have two references for that. That's Genesis 35, verse 14, and Numbers 15 and verse 10. In both instances, wine is poured out before the Lord or upon an offering on the altar. And clearly, this pouring forth represents sacrifice. It must represent surrendering yourself to God, to Jesus, just as he sacrificed himself for you. It's interesting that the other place we find Jesus is supping or, you know, having this amazing supper was the Last Supper. And there he uses the emblems of the grape juice and the bread to represent his body that was broken for us and the blood that was shed for many. And then he says, do this in, remem in remembrance of me. The true way to partake of the Lord's Supper is to participate in it, to accept it. And what it means is to give back your affections or your energies to God, just as he gave his all. To love God with all your heart, your soul and might. Because love demands all. It's all or nothing when it comes to love. In verse number three, we're introduced to what seems to be the most intimate union between the Shulamite woman and Solomon himself. It seems as though the couple is in the process of making love, but it doesn't, it doesn't need to seem so because that's the reality of the case if you read verse number three. When we read Song of Songs chapter two, 
we see that the woman was dreaming of a deeper intimacy with her lover. Just as the church should seek for a deeper intimacy with God. But now it's no longer a dream. It's a reality. And some scholars have suggested, and rightly so, that there was a time in the history of the church, that is the Old Testament, where we dreamed about Jesus, the Messiah, to see him face to face. The dream was so real that when Eve had her first child, she called his name Cain. Do you know what Cain means? Cain means a man from the Lord. Eve had this hope and expectancy to see the Messiah so much that she thought that when Cain was born, he must be the deliverer. That's how deep the dream was burning within the church of the Old Testament. Because God had said in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Ever since then, the Old Testament for nearly 4,000 years anticipated to see, to feel, to touch Jesus. In the New Testament, it's no longer a dream. It's a reality. We have Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. He walked among men. He pitched his tent with us. He ate with men. And so he became closer. He came closer. And it all, it all draws the intimacy of God. You can see that when you read the Bible carefully, you see that the whole Bible is about the intimacy of God. Similarly today, we long to see Jesus, don't we? How many of you long to see Jesus? To touch his hands that were, were pursed for us. To know him even as we are known. And soon and very soon we will see Jesus. What do you say? Amen. We will see Jesus if we are faithful. Back to the verse. This verse, like I said, shows sexual intimacy. But there's something that's deeply divine about it. Number one, the man does not force the woman. It is the woman that invites the man. Now, just from that section only, if only men, men of our time, could read and believe the word of God, there will be no rapists today. There will be no abusers in this world. Because they would learn and realize that the purpose of sex is not self-pleasure. But by design, sex is selfless, never to be forceful but graceful, and reflective of the glory and character of God. I wish men from today would understand and learn from Jesus what it means to be a man, and what it means to love. That the power of man does not lie in his ability to force things, but his suitability to be invited into things. That love does not coerce or force. But love is inviting. And so Jesus will never force you. Which is why you have to give him the permission and invite him into your life and business of your every day. The verse says, his left hand should be under my head and his right hand should embrace me. That's what the woman is saying. And it reminded me of Psalms chapter 89 verse 13 which says, Thou hast a mighty arm. Strong is thy right hand, and high is thy right hand. 
It's amazing what we find from Scripture when we study to see Jesus, to experience him. Verse number four, the woman says, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you stand not up, nor awaken my love until he please. The woman charges the daughters of Jerusalem not to disturb the communion and connection she has with her beloved. Just a quick love lesson uh, for those who are in love. When you are in love, you have to turn do not disturb on. Because the daughters of Jerusalem are standing by. They are waiting, ready to call, ready to text, ready to report and gossip. Beware of what the Song of Solomon chapter 2 refers to as little foxes that destroy the vineyard. Be careful of folk that come to kill, steal, and destroy your relationship. And if you're truly in a godly relationship, you should expect these things. Because if the devil wasn't happy with you in your singleness, what makes you think that now that you are in a, in a relationship with someone who truly loves God, what makes you think that he will be happy about that? When two people who really love God fall in love, what happens is it's a double, double threat to the devil. And so he, he, he starts attacking because at first you were just one doing God's work. Now you are two. So he's going to attack. That's a given. But we only need fear if our relationships are not godly. And so even with Jesus, we have to turn do not disturb on. We need to shut and block away the doubts, the fears, the lies, the deceptions from the devil. What I'm trying to say is focus on Jesus, just like our beautiful song uh, uh, sang this, this morning. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And all the things of the world will what? Strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I like how Hebrews chapter 12 puts it. Wherefore, this is verse 1 and 2. Wherefore, seeing we are encompassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. And let us what? Run with patience the rest that is set before us. Looking unto who? Unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Focus on Jesus, nothing else. Now moving on to verse number five. It says, who is this that comes from the wilderness, leaning upon her beloved? I raised thee up under the apple tree. There thy mother brought thee forth. There she brought thee forth that bare thee. In verse five, an interesting picture is given of the woman walking while leaning on her beloved. And that shows dependency and interdependency that ought to exist in a love relationship. It was, and it's still not is, not good for man to be alone. It's also true that it's not good, according to the Bible, well, by extension, it's not good for women to be alone as well. In fact, I would submit to you that sin came into the world as a result of being alone. The woman Eve was alone, and Adam thought that somehow it was good to be alone. And so, looking at the story of how sin came into this world, when Eve separated herself from, from Adam just for a moment, 
sin entered the world. We ought to learn from that that in our planning, in our decision-making, in our life, it is not good to be alone. But I want to take this further. What if it's not good for God to be alone? Now, here's how I know. How, why, I should say, why did God create? The fact that God created other beings apart from his, himself tells me that God saw that it is good, let's put it in the positive, it is good for him to be with others. If God saw the need of being with others, then I don't think self-isolation is the way to go. And so by God's grace, the pandemic will soon be over by God's grace, so make sure you come to church. Because it is not good for you to be alone. We are told in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. We are also told in Hebrews 3 verse 13 to exhort one another daily while it is still called today, lest any of you should be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. So learn to lean on Jesus primarily. You cannot walk alone. How can, you be, how can you be a Christian apart from Christ? It doesn't even make sense grammatically, right? And so, lean on Jesus, just as John the Beloved did. Get close. Get acquainted with him. Depend on him. Claim his promises. I love how the word of God is truly a double-edged sword. Remember how I told you that romantic relationship does not need must never happen in isolation it's in context of family it is the same with jesus christ we have to love and lean on jesus right but also we need to learn and lean in some sense on others as well back to john the beloved the one person who in a very real sense loved to lean on jesus according to john 13 verse 23 he says in 1 John 1, 7, But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have what? Fellowship, one with another, and the blood of who? Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. So not only is our relationship with God vertical, but it has some horizontal implications as well. So we are told in 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, If a man say, I love God, and hates his brother. He is a what? A liar. For he that loves not his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? I mean, even in the human relations, how can you say, I love that man or woman, when you hate their family? It doesn't make sense. We are all the body of Christ, aren't we? But John also spoke about how we fellowship with one another and also with the blood of Jesus Christ, which cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And I believe this is where the leaning, the real leaning happens. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, it says, John is continuing the, the, the writing the letter. My little children, these things I write unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. See, this is where we need to lean on Jesus. When you are weak, lean on Jesus. 
When you have fallen, lean on Jesus. When you are tired, lean on Jesus. Do not lean unto your own understanding, but lean on Jesus and he will direct your paths. I wish I could have put that song, Leaning on the Everlasting Arms. But there's so much we can learn from the word of God to lean on him. Now, as we consider the last verse, I pray that the Holy Spirit would put you in the mind to receive what is about to be discussed now. And, and if you can, please follow with me as you have been in your Bibles as we consider verse number six. Verse number six says, Set me as a seal upon thine heart, as a seal upon thine arm. For love is strong as death. Jealousy is cruel as the grave. The coals thereof are coals of fire, which hath a most vehement flame. Here, the woman seeks to have a seal or sign to prove the permanence of her relationship and union. She wants to know she is loved. And this is something unique about the Shulamite woman. Remember, Solomon had how many wives? Too much. That's a good answer. <laughs> 1,000 wives and many other concubines. But Solomon only wrote about one. Why is that? She must be different. She must be unique. And one character trait that we learned from her early on is that she doesn't cheapen herself. She doesn't want to be one among many. She wants to be the only one. She calls herself Lily, <laughs> Lily among the valley, right? She wants to be the only one. And so in our relationship with Jesus, we need to seek for and desire for a deeper experience and constant communion with Jesus. We need to get sealed. We need to confirm and make sure we are right with God. Moment by moment. We are told to make our calling and election what? Sure. To watch and pray lest we enter into temptations and fall. This book, Song of Songs, is a very instrumental book for our church today, especially in these last days. In some sense, I would say the book of Song of Songs unlocks the book of Revelation in some sense as well. In the book of Revelation, as well as in Matthew chapter 22, the illustration of marriage is used to represent our relationship with God. Jesus is shown to be our bridegroom and the church is the bride. Notice what Revelation 19, verse 6 to 9 says. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the, for the fine linen is the what? The righteousness of the saints. And he saith unto me, Right, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, these are the true sayings of God. Just as King Solomon is entering into a marriage with the Shulamite woman, Jesus is also married to us. And according to Revelation, the wedding is going on right now. So this analogy makes sense especially when you consider the Hebrew marriage and how it happened. It had the following stages according to the, uh, what's known as the Eastern wedding. The first step in the Eastern wedding was the betrothal 
or engagement between the bride and the groom, which took place at the home of the bride's father. There, the groom paid the dowry. And you think of Jesus, he already has done that. Jesus gave himself to pay for the dowry for us. He died on the cross for us. The groom then returned to his father's house to prepare the home where he would live with his wife after the marriage. What does Jesus say in John 14, verse 1 to 3? I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I, I am, there you may be also. Now, during that period of preparation, the bride would remain in her father's house doing what? Preparing for the marriage, for the wedding, I should say. Ephesians 5, 25 to 27. In the interim, the groom sent out invitations to the guests of the wedding. And that's what Jesus has done. You and I have been invited, but we also need to invite others. And so he says, go ye what? Therefore. Why is that important? Why does that connect with John 14? Because they also are invited to the wedding. They need to know that Jesus loves them. They need to know that Jesus died for them. So the groom also, in the interim, sent a special garment to the guests that gave them the right to attend the wedding as guests. Those who did not have the garment had no right to be in the wedding chamber. When the place and the bride were ready, the bridegroom re would return to the bride's home to take her to his father's house where the wedding ceremony took place. And so the wedding reception followed in the home of the groom's father. Now, all these things are interesting. And when you look at the analogy, and I love what Jesus does in the Bible, all he does is use parables. And that's so, I'm so thankful to God for that because, I mean, who can understand God, right? It, it will take eternity to, I mean, even throughout eternity, nobody will ever fully understand God. So what does he do? He creates, he comes to our level. He creates analogies to help us understand. And so he creates Adam. Then he's like, nah, it's not good. I need to create Eve as well. Because Adam will be so confused, he, wouldn't, he won't even understand what's going on here. Because Eve, Adam and Eve together complete the image of God. In the image of God created he them. And that's why when you, when you look at, even in our relationships, I think the reason why God created relationships, it could be romantic or even family relationships, particularly romantic relationships, because it is the beginning of all relationships if you think about it. The reason why God gave us those relationships is so that we can better relate to him. Because when you understand the relationship between man and woman, you understand what God is looking for. I was talking with my brother yesterday, and a thought came to mind how we are so afraid to talk about sex in the church today. And unfortunately, the world is building billions of dollars in corrupt, corrupting what sex should look like and what sex is. When God created sex, he had a purpose. It's not for pleasure. Well, that's a plus, perhaps, but primarily there's a purpose. God, what God is saying with sex is, you see that? I want something better than that with you. That's what God is saying. And in, if, if your love, <laughs> no wonder God says, if, if you love your spouse more than me, you're not worthy of me. Because he wants something deeper. All these are analogies. If you look at life, 
it's just a lesson book with so many things we can learn and can never fully exhaust. Anyways, it's interesting that the bride, the bride it, says, it says the bride is ready, I mean. She is clothed in fine linen, clean and white. The fine linen is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which he gives us. He gives to all who receive him as Lord and Savior. The host of the redeemed are the citizens of his glorious kingdom. Thus his bride, Christ's church, the kingdom, is symbolically clothed in the righteousness of the saints. All this, friends, is only possible because Jesus went to prepare a place for us in heaven. But what does that mean exactly? Is Jesus continuing his carpentry in heaven? Or is he doing something different? What is Jesus doing? Interceding for us. He sends his Holy Spirit to seal us. In 1844, Jesus came to the Father from the holy to the most holy place to begin the process that would eventually make it possible for him to receive the kingdom or to marry his bride, the church as a whole. Since 1844, the king has been examining the garments of each person individually who has accepted the gospel invitation to the wedding to determine if they have the right to attend the wedding. The judgment began with the dead that first lived on the earth and will end with those who are alive. These persons as individuals are the invited guests to the wedding. However, the people as a whole, the faithful church, in its entirety, are Christ's betrothed bride or his kingdom. It's very interesting how, even as I was studying, and by the way, um, I studied a series on the book Song of Songs, going over each chapter verse by verse, and it was mind-blowing what I found. Literally, it connects with the whole word of God, with all the scripture. It's not an isolated book. It's not, it's not here accidentally. It's not a book that's not supposed to be read. It connects with everything else because it is inspired. And so you will see the sanctuary message in the book Song of Songs. You will see everything the Bible talks about in this book. And so looking at what God has done for us and what he says in his law, let me read the verse again just to recap here. Verse number six, set me as a seal upon thine heart, as a seal upon thine arm. For love is strong as death. Jealousy is cruel as the grave. The coals thereof are coals of fire, which are the most vehement flame. Looking at what Jesus has done for us, what God has done for us, it's very clear that God is jealous over his people with a deep jealousy vehement jealousy if you like it says in Exodus chapter 20 from verse 4 to 5 thou shalt not make unto thee any what graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth thou shalt not bow thyself to them nor serve them for I the Lord thy God am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. God is jealous over us as a church. God is jealous over you. He does not want to share you with anyone else. 
God is looking for a very specific type of intimacy. And going back to, to the idea of why God created sex and why marriage must be between two people, male and female, there's reasons for these things. Because between two people, you have that intimacy that is focused, that is not shared. If you're in a marriage relationship with more than two people, what you're doing is you cannot fully give yourself to the other person. You are undivided, divided I should say. You are divided between two, three, five people. But God wants it to be fully. You have to give all to one person and the other person has to give all to you. That's why God created male and female. Well, just maybe one of the reasons because who can exhaust them? God is jealous. We are told in Patriarchs and Prophets under the chapter, the law given to Israel, the close and sacred relation of God to his people is represented under the figure of marriage. Idolatry, being spiritual adultery, adultery. The displeasure of God against it is fitly called jealousy. God hates it when we worship other gods. God hates it when we share him with other little things in our lives. And so, we also, what I see this verse teaching us is, God has done his part. He is jealous over us. It's very clear. He has loved us with a love stronger than what? Death. He died on the cross. He gave his all. And by the way, that's how love is. The truest definition of love is selflessness, a selflessness that is so deep that it gives its life away. Think about it. When you give your life for someone, what is left to give? Nothing, right? So that's the ultimate, most level of what you can give. And that then becomes the definition of love. God has done that. But you know what God is looking for? Reciprocity. He wants it back. You need to be jealous over him. You need to protect his things. You need to protect his truth. You need to vindicate his character. You need to be what? His witnesses. Isaiah makes it very clear. You are my witnesses, says the Lord. That you may know that I am he. I am the only one. I am the only king. I am the only savior. We need to invest as much time we invest in our physical relationships with God. Because our relationships are only a picture, a miniature of what God is looking for. We need to nurture and grow the relationship with God. We need to set time to talk. Set time to learn about each other. With God, we need to have time to chill and chat with God. To talk with God as Moses did as a friend talks to a friend. Always remember... Like I said, the reason why God gave us relationships is so that we can better relate to him. God has loved us with a love stronger than death. And this re refers to the power of the cross, the efficacy of the blood of Jesus Christ to save us from our sins. Greater love has no man than this, that he should lay down his life for his friends. Selflessness, to live for the other person and not you. It's interesting. Think about it. God is saying, I will live for you now live for me. God is not focusing on himself. He's focusing on us. And he's asking in return, please focus on me. And that is the, that's, that's what intimacy means. And that's 
upon that, that's where the whole, the safety, the security of eternity hinges upon. Nothing can beat that. Because there's selflessness. The love of God is really incomprehensible. To some extent, unspeakable. Through the cross of Calvary, God did all he could. God gave all and left nothing. And church, we need to understand this because if God gave all, right, that means if we miss the cross, then we are at cross paths with God. And there is no other hope for us. In Christian experience and teaching of Ellen White, page 100, Ellen White had a vision and it says, Then I saw that Jesus would not leave the most holy place until every case was decided, either for salvation or destruction. God is patient. He's waiting. And that the wrath of God could not come until Jesus had finished his work in the most holy place, laid off his priestly attire, and clothed himself with the garments of vengeance. And that sounds to me like some jealousy going on, some coals of fire that we read about in the verse. God's love is so strong that if we reject it, it will literally kill us. Here's what I mean. Proverbs 8, again, referring to Jesus Christ, says, Those that hate me love death. This is why the Shulamite woman, like the Shulamite woman, I should say, we need to ask God to seal us, to engrave our names upon his arm in the book of life, that he may truly be our beloved and that we may be his. In conclusion, I wish we could go on and on. Learning what Song of Songs has to teach us about our walk with God and how we need to prepare for eternity. But here's a classic quote that summarizes everything from the book Christ Object Lessons, page 307. The parable of the wedding garment opens before us a lesson of the highest consequence. By the marriage is represented the union of humanity with divinity. The wedding garment represents the character which all must possess who shall be accounted fit guests for the wedding. What interested me about this quote is union between divinity and humanity. Therefore shall a man leave what? His father and the woman her home and they too shall be what? One. Think about how Jesus literally fulfills that. He left his father, literally, traveled who knows how many light years from heaven to here. He left his father. He left his glory. He left what was most familiar to him, and he came to this world so that we can be one, so that we can be united. And salvation, yes, is by faith, but it's the working of both humanity and divinity. No wonder Jesus was clothed, humanity clothed with divinity. Both must work together. That's how God is going to close the end, uh, close the, the history of the world, I should say. We have to be willing to be used by him. Because the book of Revelation makes it clear that at the sound of the, I believe it's the seventh trumpet, the mystery of God must be finished. 
And what is the mystery of God, church? It is Christ in us, the hope of glory. It is that union that needs to happen, that intimacy that cannot be broken. And that intimacy begins at the cross. You know, throughout eternity, what makes God and the angels so sure that we will not sin again? It's what Jesus did on the cross. He gave all. And we, when we beheld that, we also gave all. And the nails in his hands, the wounds, the scars, will ever be a reminder that we are safe and secure. Isn't that powerful? What if all along, what God is looking for, what God is just wanting from you is deeper intimacy? He just wants to know you and you to know him. When God created human beings, he did so out of love. When we sinned and disobeyed, he did so out of love. He saved us. On the cross, God showed his love for us. There with his arms stretched, nailed to the cross, he was saying to humanity, to you and me, will you be my valentine? Will you be my love? The only one. Laser focused love. Don't share me with anyone else, just you and me. Jesus is in the heavenly sanctuary, in the most holy place. There he is interceding for us. There he is confirming our case. Jesus has done everything to show that he loves us. But what do we do in return? What is the reciprocity? That's what God is waiting for all these years. I gave my life for thee, the song says. My precious blood I shed that thou mightst ransomed be and quickened from the dead. I gave, I gave my life for thee. What hast thou given for me? I gave, I gave my life for thee. What hast thou given for me? My father's house of light, my glory circled throne. I left for earthly night, for wandering sad and lone. I left, I left it all for thee. What hast thou left for me? I left, I left it all for thee. Hast thou left anything for me? I suffered much for thee. More than tongue can tell of bitterest agony to rescue thee from hell. I've borne, I've borne it all for thee. What hast thou borne for me? I've borne, I've borne it all for thee. What hast thou borne for me? Now, if you accept Christ's invitation, to fall in love with him, to fall deeper in love with him, to have a continual communion, communication and connection with him, to be sealed, to be sanctified, to be saved. If this is your desire and you make that decision today to take your, your relationship with God seriously, to grow daily, to invite others to the wedding as well of the Lamb, if that's you today, please stand with me and let us approach God and ask for this deeper love that we lack. All right, let us pray. Loving Father, thank you so much for what you've done. You have given your all you gave your only begotten son. 
You have done everything that can be done to save us. Lord, I just pray that we may respond back to you. I pray, Lord, that you may create within us that love that we don't have. Like the Shilamite woman, Lord, I pray that we may thirst and hunger after, after righteousness. I pray that we may have a deeper desire to go deeper with you, to know you even as we are known. Lord, you say this is eternal life, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus whom thou hast sent. Father, help us to know you. Who are you, Lord? That we may, as we know you, that we may, we may know what is the purpose of life because you created us for a purpose. So help us to know you in our lives. Forgive us, Lord, where we have, we have, we have been unfaithful to you. We have went after many other lovers of this world. We have made sin the center of our lives. Forgive us, Lord, and heal us. Because, Lord, not only are you our brother, sorry, our bride, groom, but you are our brother as well. And you, above anybody else, understands what it means to be human. You know the weaknesses of humanity. And we, we at this point, dedicate our humanity to you to you who is wise, to the only true God, the only one who is able to keep us from falling. To you we submit our lives to you at this time. And Father, I pray for people who are in this church today, those who have heard this message and those who will in the future. Lord, I pray that they may be convicted to love you more than they do. To love you with a love deeper than a love of a man and a woman. To go deeper to experience you. Thank you for the Sabbath. May we indeed commune with you deeply today. Thank you for everything you've done for us, and we know that you continue to be with us throughout eternity. Prepare us for your second coming. Prepare us for the wedding that is going on right now, that we may be ready, that we may not be found without a, a wedding garment or with a wedding garment that is not right. This is my prayer. In Jesus' name. And we know you've heard us because we ask in his name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, church.